everyone. This is Shannon Waller here, and I want to thank you very much for joining me because today we're going to have a conversation with Dave Logan, one of my very favorite authors of a fabulous book called Tribal Leadership, Leveraging Natural Groups to Build a Thriving Organization. Now, Dave has a wealth of information and experience to bring to the table as we go towards creating self-managing companies and really towards building unique ability teams. So the wisdom in this book is just phenomenal. But before we get into that, I want to let you know a little bit more about Dave. So Dave is co-founder of CultureSync, a management consulting firm specializing in cultural change, executive coaching, and strategy. He's also a faculty member in the Management and Organization Department at USC's Marshall School of Business at USC. And in fact, I've taken a course there, which was a great, fabulous online programming. So, Dave, you clearly have a lot on the go. Is there anything that we've missed that's really crucial to know? No, no, I think that handles it. I have a couple of kids and I have a cat that's sitting on my lap right now. <laughs> that's all that I'd add. I love that. What's your cat's name? Uh, his name is The Dude. He's named after the Big Lebowski because if people meet him, they say, that's a dude, and that's who he is. I love every second of that. <laughs> well, thanks. I have a perfect picture of what it looks like to be you right now. This is good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, so going back to our initial subject for today, which is tribal leadership, the thing that's just for everyone to appreciate, I mean, I read a lot of books. I'm an avid reader, and I curate a lot of the best ones for that I recommend to my to my audience, which includes strategic coach clients and team members and people who've um, purchased the Team Success Handbook, which is my latest endeavor. And at the back, I have a recommended reading list, and Dave, your book is highlighted on that as being one of the crucial books to read. So the thing that is so amazing for me is this book was written in 2008. Now, I, like a lot of our clients, have a fairly short attention span, and I'm usually on to the new best thing. But the thing that's kind of amazing to me about tribal leadership is I can't forget it. I can quote the five stages at will. I can tell you a little bit about how to move from one stage to the next. So one of the things that's so amazing for me is that you have, with your partners, you know, distilled down a, a ton of information and research into a really practical model that I think really helps people, especially those in leadership positions and organizations, but also any team member for that matter, take a fresh, clear perspective on their organization and see how they can make it better. And I, I kind of can't get it out of my head, which I really like. <laughs> so I just, first of all, want to say thank you for creating something that's so enduring. And let's just make sure that everyone's on the same page if they haven't had the benefit of reading the book yet. Could you outline the five stages of tribes? Well, maybe we should probably define a tribe and then outline the five stages, because that'll be our starting point for the rest of the conversation. Okay, sure. Well, the, the big breakthrough that came when we were trying to understand culture is what group of people helps to define a culture. And that probably sounds like an academic question, but it's really, really important and in the old days, people would, now I'm talking about going back to the 60s and before, is people usually assumed that a company had a certain culture. So IBM has a culture or Boeing has a culture, just name two companies. And if anybody has been around those companies, that's actually not true. That culture has become much more local over the years because people move around a lot in their jobs. Companies have become more global. There's a lot of, of co-sourcing that happens and co-location, so you might be sitting next to somebody that may not be, you may not work with. So a lot of entrepreneurs, if they're going to start service-based businesses, their, their group of people includes people that could be customers or clients or suppliers, or they could be advisors or spouses. Or, so this, this idea of who constitutes the group 
is really important. And I think because no one had answered that in a, in a really clear way, everything that followed from it got all mushy and hard to follow. And so most people think the culture is really hard to change. And actually, we don't have that opinion at all. We actually think it's fairly easy as long as you go through the right, the right process to get there. So the question then is, is what is the group that, that culture is built from? And we came to the conclusion it's about 20 to about 150, that that's, the, that's a group that has a certain stability to it. And in English, that group doesn't have a name. I know a team is usually five, six, seven people. It might go up to 12. If it's in software, it could conceivably go up to the high teens. But it's not really a, a word for something bigger than a team and smaller than other stuff. And so we came up with the word tribe, and that's what we mean by tribe. So we're not talking about a tribe as in all of your friends or a social movement that you're creating that a business happens to ride on top of or something like that or the number of Facebook contacts you have. It's a naturally occurring group of between 20 and 150. And with that idea, then we go into, okay, well, then what are the different types of tribes? And it turns out there are really only five of them. And I think, Shanna, the reason that you can still name them is because we went out of our way to to really understand how each of the tribes sees the world and the language that they use. And we tried to come up with a term that that captured how they see the world. And it's a little bit crass, but it's pretty accurate to what people see. And the, it seems to resonate with reality, I think, keeps people coming back to the lingo. And so what we call stage one, so this is a ladder. It goes from everything you don't want to everything you do want. Stage one says to themselves, life sucks, that life is just unfair. Life is broken, but the tagline, if you will, is life sucks. And this is only about 2% of tribes that are out there, but they do not great things. They steal stuff. They cook the books, talking about a business context. Mm -hmm. They'll go out of their way to make sure that they get theirs, even if that means stealing something from someone else. So these are, these are potentially violent groups, or these are groups that will resort to criminal behavior. Again, rare, but they do happen, about 2%. If we go up, a, up one notch, there's only five, so we're done with one, now we're going on to, to two. This group is very common. And it doesn't say that life sucks. It says my life sucks. So I can see yours is fine. If I had your opportunities, if I had your, your connections, then my life wouldn't suck, but I don't, so it does. And so when whole <laughs> groups of people, remember, 2,150 get together, and this is how they talk. My life sucks. Well, here's another reason my life sucks. Well, my life sucks because of management. My life sucks because we're not raising enough money. My life sucks because I have too many unread email messages. And they all just pile on top of these complaint fests. Then, as you can imagine, not a lot of work gets done. Essentially, the minimum to not get fired. There's virtually no innovation. So nothing really new comes along. And people will avoid any accountability. And what's really fun about it is a lot of the things that people try to do to make cultures or even teams better completely backfire at stage two. So if you bring in motivational speakers, that just gives them something else to complain about. <laughs> and if you do team-building exercises, like let's go climb some ropes or let's go do whitewater rafting, again, it just becomes more fodder for jokes. Now, there are ways to change it, but the key is you have to move it to the next stage. So stage one, as dysfunctional as it is, that's remember life sucks, can move to two, where my life sucks. And that may not sound like a great improvement, but actually for kids at risk, it's major going from – something where life is inherently broken to I now see myself at a, at, at a temporary disadvantage. That's from one to two. 
So two can only go to three if it's going to move up. So then what is three? The tagline for three is, I'm great, and sorry, Shannon, but you're not. So <laughs> I'm great, and you're not. So there's, there's always a competitor, and it's a person. And so this is personally competitive. We see these, these tribes a lot in healthcare because doctors are trained to be the best, the smartest. We see them a lot in engineering cultures. We see them a lot in entrepreneurial ventures where the co-founders will often do this battle. One person would be good at closing business. One person might be good at raising money. One person might be good at running the overall operation. And then they get in these fights about which of those is more important, and the whole thing eventually degenerates. Mm -hmm. But stage two, just to go back to that for a minute, is the case 25% of the time. Great. One in four employed tribes that you bump into, their language set is, my life sucks and we wonder why not a lot of work gets done. Mm-hmm. When we go to stage three, that's the case between 48 and 49%. It was a rounding thing, so just to round it, call it half. So it's half of all tribes are stage three. And you see now why that's a problem, because, Shannon, if I'm great and you're not, and let's say that you say back, well, no, 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 I'm great, you're not. So that <laughs> might be a conversation among university faculty or management consultants or best-selling authors, things like that. Then let's say, Shannon, that you win, at least temporarily, and, and you convince me that you're in fact great and I'm in fact not, I then fall down to stage two. Right. So stage three needs stage two. Stage three, the individuals in it, leads stage two with this absolute derision. You know, how come they can't get their stuff together? Why don't they show any initiative? There's very little realization that they're at two, at least in part, because we're at three. So we're great and they suck. Well, how come they act like they suck? Well, maybe it's because we constantly send them the message that I'm great and you're not on an individual basis. Sounds very codependent. So if you just pause there, now you see why we have such a, such a major problem. So 49% of tribes is the actual number for stage three. Stage two is 25%, 2% at stage one. The vast majority of employed tribes are highly non-functional. Stage three gets a lot more done than two, but there's very little collaboration. Everything's individual. So an individual might have a new idea, but they almost never have other people to want to do it. So you hit that, that block that no one else wants to work with you. Everything feels hard. It's very dramatic. There's a lot of gossip that goes into stage three. So then stage four is not I'm great, but we're great. So that's where you have a group that coalesces around their their commitments, their purposes, call them whatever you want, their values, their something like that, some core, deep commitment that they have. People begin saying we automatically. They don't have to be told to do it. They just do it because they look at their, the people in their tribe and they believe they have common things to speak from, to make decisions from. And the, the major hallmark of stage three uh, is, that, is that values are individual. So, Shannon, I'm great, and among other things, it makes me great. Of course, I'm smarter than you are, and I'm more accomplished than you are, and, I'm, and I'll just go down the list of whatever I think my assets are. But one of them is, you know, my commitments, the, thing that, the things that drive me, that's probably better than your list. At stage four, it's really that we have kind of the same list that, that makes us do great things. And so at that point, it's really hard to compete with someone that shares your core commitment. So partnerships become very easy to form at stage four, and collaboration is very easy. You almost can't not innovate at stage four. That number is about 22% of tribes. And then the very last one is stage five. So just to be clear, stage four is we're great, and 
they're not. There's another group over there that's not as great as we are. That might be another business that we're competing with. It could be another, if we're a big company, it could be another group within our same company. It, it might even be that we, we help client, we save clients from themselves. So we're great, our clients suck. <laughs> but there, there is a sense of a competitor at stage four. At stage five, the theme of it is life is great. And it sounds a little bit like people are sitting around and imbibing in illegal substances and dreaming a little, a little bit. It's almost like you know happiness and joy. But um, what, what happens is it's a, it's a pure values play. And people really see the, the potential and, the, and they see what's possible. And they, and they have such a track record having climbed the, the mountain, at least probably from two to three to four, that they feel like really what they need is a challenge that's up to them. So the great example of stage five that we saw, we went into Pixar around the time that they were releasing, I think it was Toy Story 2, kind of around that time. And we said, so who's your competitor? And we expected to hear DreamWorks, which from a business school perspective is probably the right answer. And they said, hair. <laughs> we said, hair? You know, how can you be in competition with hair? And the reason was they couldn't render it. They couldn't make it look real. So what drove them, their, their values, their commitments, was artistry, perfection, beauty. And they felt that the hair that they were rendering for the characters in their movies didn't live up to that potential. So that's where this world-changing impact comes in. When groups ascend to five, that's where this innovation comes that just changes everything. And they essentially reinvent the game of, of the industry. So those are the five stages. I love it. Thank you for it entertainingly describe them. <laughs> That's very fun. So a couple of questions about that for me. So stage two sounds very much like people are a victim. They feel victimized by their circumstances. Right. And I, when I recall from reading the book is that you can try and address some of their issues, but then they say, well, yeah, but that wasn't really the problem. It's really this. Right. So you can't, it's really tough to get people out of stage two. Is that right? Well, certainly there, there's a... The usual ways. Yeah, well, what actually holds people in stage two, if you look at it, is, first of all, I'm not on the hook for anything. So if something's going wrong, I, I only know one thing. It's not my fault. Mm -hmm. So I'm never on the hook. It's never my problem. It may be my problem, but it's not my responsibility. And the other thing is, if you, if you have a natural comedian in stage two, it's really funny. So I was with a group yesterday, people from executives in the food industry from around North America, and... They, were, they reported that they have a big problem with stage two, and the reason is because as people are you know, taking their smoke breaks, that actually does still happen in a few industries, that they would get together and just make fun of everything that was going on in the company. So in the midst of, of this sarcastic derision, for someone to stand up and say, uh, well, how come you don't take responsibility for what's going on, that just becomes the fodder of the next joke. So that's what keeps people in stage two. I'm never on the hook. And it's really funny. I don't feel good about myself at the end of the day. I probably feel really tired, burned out, haven't accomplished anything, probably don't feel great about my life in general, probably go home and sit down on my Lazy Boy and watch Jerry Springer, because I have to find something that I look good in comparison to. But you know, it's a real problem at, at stage two. But the way you get people out of it is actually mentoring. It's one-on-one. -on -one. So if you find the ringleader in stage two, the person who's bringing everyone else down, and you can flip that person into stage three, then they could potentially become the on-ramp for other people in that group to move up also. So when you understand that you, you, you raise two to three by 
finding these individual relationships, forming what are called dyads, two-person relationships. You find the ringleader, and Shannon, you would go to the ringleader and say, yeah, I think you have potential. How, let me invest some time. Let's see if we can, if we can really bring your impact into this company, because you have a lot to offer. If you pick the right person, they might agree. You essentially coach them or mentor them. And there'll be a point of epiphany where they say, I'm great. How come everybody else around me sucks so bad? <laughs> so they have moved from stage two to three. And then you find somebody else that they're working with, maybe another ringleader, and say, can you do for that person what I did for you? And they'll say, but, you know, but I'm great and they suck. Well, right, but could you make them, pardon the expression, suck less? <laughs> then you get this mentoring that snakes its way through the tribe. And a whole tribe can shift from two to three pretty quickly once that mentoring takes off. And it's a lot more fun to be at stage three than it is at two. It is that. So one of the main conversations I want people to get insights to get out of this is that is the sense of upward mobility, <laughs> totally different context. Um, so we've talked about two to three. And I think for a lot of people, at least the conversations I have, because my passion, as most people know, is entrepreneurial teamwork and making it better and successful and all of those kinds of things. And I, when I ever find, I find great tools like this one, I'm like, oh, I'm all over it. So most people that I have conversations with are either at stage three or they are working with people at stage three. Right. And if I need to pinpoint problems in companies, it's someone who is, and this is in my words, so you can help me frame this, someone who is race status oriented, someone who's all about protecting their turf. And in an entrepreneurial company where so much is moving so fast and collaboration is kind of the name of the game, and they can actually really subvert the innovations and cooperation and, and teamwork that's really necessary to get the job done. So stage three is where I hear, fortunately I don't have to hear too much about stage two because it sounds depressing, right. uh, but stage three is a real issue for a lot of the team, certainly the entrepreneurs that I talk to. Um, however, I know some of them also have been firmly anchored in stage three. <laughs> <laughs> when yep. we're talking about their teams. So how do people get from, so we talked about two to three, how do people get from three to four? Sure. Well, I'll give you three things that, that tend to work. The first one is you have to really honor the fact and respect the fact that the person has worked very hard to get where they are. And you're talking about entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. We have a lot of entrepreneurs as clients at Culture Sync, which is, you know, we love that sector. I'm an entrepreneur myself. And the thing about, about that is, you know, I had to work hard. I probably had to take risks. I probably had to be smart about the business plan. I probably had to manage the finances pretty well. I probably had to be smart about the hires. So you hear I, the word I, coming up again and again. Mm -hmm. So if you say, well, wow, you're really fixated on yourself. How come you don't stop that and say we instead? That just reinforces the need for me to further explain how much I've done for my business and why you're not appreciating how great I am. So, so it doesn't go away because you tell it to. In other words, a person doesn't move from three to four because you point out that they're a self-obsessed egomaniac that's demeaning to other people. It, in fact, if anything, it becomes sort of a game. Then, then they go out of their way to highlight how cool they are because it's fun. They sort of got positive reinforcement from it. So that's one thing. You really kind of have to honor the fact that, wow, you've worked really hard and gotten lucky and taken risks and to get where you are. That message is very important for someone to hear to move up. Mm -hmm. The second message is that the reason that you have worked so hard is not just because of your ability. In part, yeah, you're put on the planet because you've worked hard and you're made to work hard. But, you know, you've got something driving you. You've got a, you've got a vision. You've got a, a value, a commitment that's the rocket fuel that's pushing you. And what do you think that is? 
And if you find what that is, and then find what other people have as their rocket fuel, their values is really what you're going for, in fact, their core values, then it's a lot harder to demean someone that has the same core conviction that I have. So as an, as an example, you know, one of the roles that I have is, is um, I teach um, in an executive MBA program, one of the better ranked ones in, in uh, North America, arguably the top one for leadership. And everybody in that program has always been the best in the world at what they did. Always. We've got 70 in one class. We have 50 in another. And for them to realize that, number one, they're active peers with each other. And number two, they have the same drive as everyone else in the room, meaning the same values. They're there to learn. They're there to grow. They're there to network. Suddenly, it begins to shift the language. So, yeah, you have to honor the fact you're amazing, you're cool, let me let me do the, the Wayne's world. I'm not worthy in front of you a few times. And then let's find the real driver. And often people will shift into more of a humble mode because they remember somebody else instilled that in, in them. It might have been a parent. It might have been a teacher. But they didn't just come to this realization on their own that, that, that growth is important or development is important. You know, I learned that from my mom. I learned that from my dad. I learned that from someone. So there's a real recognition that that came from somebody. So finding the value is a, is, a, is a second one. And then the third one is, is really altering the structure of the relationships that people set up. So, so Shannon, if I'm great and I look at you as kind of sucking, then I'm going to connect to you really for the purpose of getting whatever work out of you that I can get, which is not very much because, you know, I'm awesome and you're not so awesome. So I'm going to connect to you and just try to, I'm going to try to hit your buttons. I'm going to try to motivate you in whatever little way I think works. But, you know, I, I know you're not capable very much because you're not me. And so at stage three, people connect in these kind of hub-and-spoke relationships. They have all these hub-and-spoke relationships around them. At stage four, that's not the kind of relationships that people form. They find two people that they're hub-and-spoke connected to, and they connect those people to each other. That's called a triad, T-R-I-A-D, a three-person relationship. And the technical way to say it is that you have the back of the relationship between those two people. So it's not just that you have their back as individuals, you have their back as a relationship. And one way to think about that that usually really resonates with people is if you think of a marriage, and obviously we're talking about business here, but just to use marriage as an analogy for a minute, the single biggest predictor of whether a marriage is going to survive is the support or lack of by friends and family. And the reason is if you're you know, married to somebody, that's a dyad, that's a two-person relationship. And if you have a spat, and every couple eventually does, and you go tell your friends, my, my wife, my husband, we had a fight, and they really don't like the relationship, they don't support it, they're going to say, well, it's about time. You know, man, we, we've been waiting for this to happen for years. We've got blogs we keep. We've got all this stuff in writing. Let's share it with you because we wanted you to come to this realization on your own. But, man, you can do so much better than that person. That relationship is probably over. But if they have the back of your marriage, if then you have a spat and you go to someone and they say, you know, you're an idiot. That person is great for you. That person brings out the best in you. You see the world the same way. You've got the same dream that you're building. You need different people, different skills, different capacities, but really that you're, you're on the same page. You're not going to find better than that. Then that, that marriage is probably going to work. So think about that in the context of business. If you created those triadic relationships around you, a natural byproduct of that is now all of those people 
are going to have the back of the relationship that you have with people. So the relationships around you become much stronger, more bulletproof, less prone to you know, derailment, really strong. And if those relationships are with people that are going to give you money or that are going to be clients for you or potentially employees for you, now we've got that kind of stage four culture where you know, that's something that's built to really do some pretty serious impact in the world. So those are the three things. One is you have to honor the fact that you've worked really hard to get here. Don't take anything away from that. Number two is find the core value behind the person that's pushing the person and find that value or one similar to it in people around them, and suddenly the language will shift really automatically from I to we. And then the third one is, is go out of your way to then start building those triadic relationships as opposed to dyads, and that really moves people from stage three to four. That is really powerful, and I appreciate you delineating it so clearly. <clears throat> and I, I just to give a little personal testimonial to that, one of the things that I realized is like, you know, I want to improve my teamwork because that's my kind of mission in life. So I have to do as I say. And one of the things I started being really conscious about was instead of when I was having a meeting, instead of just having it be with one person in the room, I would actually intentionally bring in a third. And it was really interesting. So, it, I mean, I have great relationships with our incredible team. They're awesome. Um, but I realized it was like every time I brought in, a th- like especially if projects were getting going kind of by the wayside or they weren't getting traction, I thought, okay, you know what? It, it needs someone else's support. And so I started having meetings with three people, and the results took off. It was kind of scary how easy it was and all it took was someone else's energy coming in and usually i pick someone who had complementary talents and skills and stuff yeah and we do share the same values so even for those of us that do have very similar values i can still get dispersed and distracted but when i brought that other person in boom the results were there much faster and that's part of the thing i think that's so amazing about tribal leadership is you actually, it, this is not just a nice to do. This is not just a nice culture that you're creating. So you're happy when you come to work, there are direct productivity and innovation gains as a result of moving up the tribal scale. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? Like how much more effective are companies who are at, at stage four rather than stage three? Well, so much more effective at the higher stages that our publisher, Harper Collins, <laughs> The same company owns uh, HarperCollins. It owns Fox News, just to put this into perspective. <laughs> they made us take out our claims about just how much more effective the higher levels could be because they thought it sounded like hyperbole, kind of exaggeration. Really? And remember, that's the same company that owns Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> no politics in that, just None. throwing it out there. Uh, what we found is that often the key performance indicators will move up 300 to 500% if you take a tribe from, let's say, 3 to 4 so if you take them wherever they are and you move them a level, then you get that three- to five-fold increase. And I know that sounds huge until you think about you know, what that would actually look like. So stage one, they're going out of their way to steal stuff, cook the books. If you could move them to a point where they're actually not burning the place down, that would be a major improvement. Yes. So one to two makes sense. Okay, well, what about two to three? Well, two is completely disengaged. All they do is complain and gripe and tell you why it's not their fault. Every sentence starts with the word because, you know, hey, is the report done? Well, you know, because I got to work late and because he asked me for that and because the server's been down, I didn't. So there's really the minimum to not get fired is all that gets done. If you could elevate that to the better run organizations in the world, which tend to be at stage three, and, you know, that's sad to say that, but that's the truth, then you've got everybody trying to get stuff done. 
you know, that's a group dental practice where everybody is seeing patients and doing great work, and they're not collaborating, but they're doing really great work individually. That's going to, compared to stage two, that's going to be a massive increase. Well, then imagine that if you got your talent and you webbed them together so that they were innovating as a natural byproduct of what they did, it would be obvious that one person would see a warning indicator about a certain client relationship that might go, might go sour, and suddenly everybody knows about it, everybody's working on it, and you get these groups of three that are working on it, as opposed to every person toiling in silence, feeling like they're the only one working then that's going to be much more effective. And now we're talking about companies like Zappos. We're talking about tribes within Apple that have traditionally been at, at stage four. And now it doesn't really seem so, you know, such a big claim to say your KPIs are going to jump 300 to 500%. And then the move to five is that's the iPhone compared to, at the time, everybody else trying to make something a little better than everybody else. Remember, we're great, they're not. Mm-hmm. So we can just make our next release a little better than everybody else, then we'll, we'll, we'll stay there. But, but Apple said, we're not going to do that. We're going to reinvent what this thing even means. So let's not even look at the competition. Let's design the very best thing that is possible with today's technology. And that was the iPhone. So it's, you know, hard to, it's hard to beat that. So when you put it in that context, you know, it makes sense. Now, just throw in one other line. This comes from Peter Drucker, the person who founded Modern Management, uh, we can't find chapter and verse in this quote, uh, on this quote, but enough people have said it that we think it's true. So I'll just say he's alleged to have said this. So Peter Drucker, alleged quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> so you get your strategy, but you're in stage three. Nobody else is going to want to do it because it's your strategy. It's not their strategy. And at stage two, oh, here we go again. Yeah, you went to some meeting. You met with your coach. Now you got another plan that you're going to try to make us do, yeah, the last one go not well. Well, this one won't go well either, but okay, let's give it a try. So they're dooming it to failure before it even starts. Stage four would greet it with at least a certain amount of enthusiasm and, and probably kick the tires. And if it's got merit, everybody would jump on board. I love it. So now I want to make sure that everyone who's uh, listening, who's in the entrepreneurial world really understands how to Graphs this, and one of my one of the questions I was going to ask you. I'm glad, so glad you mentioned Apple and and Zappos because I ask you, what are your favorite examples of companies, or what are, or so we've heard about the big names that we're all familiar with. If you could talk about without naming names, unless they, unless you want to, what are some of the examples where you've seen smaller, more entrepreneurial organizations adopt the thinking and the more important the methodology, the tools to move from levels, and what's happened with them? Can you think of a couple? I guess, case study type things that would be illustrative of this? Um, sure. I mean, there's actually one up your way that I visited along with a couple of colleagues a few months ago called B Notions. Okay, great. B Notions. It's B and then Notions as in I have a notion for something.com. It's cool. an amazing company. And um, they're amazing. They know their values. They're living it every day. They're, you know, an employer of choice. Everybody wants to be like them. They're very small. They're not public. They're, you know, way pre-IPO. We bump into small companies all the time that are that are just vibrating with that stage four or stage five buzz. And here's what's almost always the case. People are enthusiastic, they're engaged, they're plugged in, they're innovating. Everybody wants to be part of them. You know, hey, you need money? Sure. Because I got some on you know, I'll invest in you. You guys are amazing. And you're really investing not even in the strategy that they have, you're investing in the people and in the relationships they have. Because you know if the strategy goes sideways, they'll figure out a new one. They'll innovate real time. 
So, you know, we bump into these groups all the time, and most of them are not household names. You know, they're, they grow into household names. You know, I, when I use Zappos as an example in working with entrepreneurs, I don't talk about the Zappos that exist today because they're big and they're part of Amazon, but the little tiny Zappos that was founded in San Francisco where everybody was living in essentially Tony Shea's uh, place because they didn't have any money for payroll and people were working for, you know, a little bit of equity in the company – it wasn't by any means certain that they were going to survive, but they had that stage four vibe or Airbnb, which is now a big player that's disrupting a lot of stuff in hospitality. Uh, if you're not familiar with Airbnb, I've blogged about both those companies, about Bmotions and about, about Airbnb.com. Airbnb is now getting you know, sort of big. We went and visited them when they were really small. And, I mean, again, if, if they would have said at the end of the meeting, we want some money, are you willing to invest? I would have pulled out my checkbook. <laughs> I actually read the story about Airbnb. I didn't realize that when they needed some money and they, if you're not familiar with the story for those listening, and, and they said we didn't actually have a, a bed to lend people, so we blew up air mattresses and we called Airbnb, <laughs> Air Bed and mm-hmm. Breakfast, and that's where the name came from. Oh, I, that still to me is somewhat hysterical. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, that attitude of, and I love what you said about <clears throat> culture eat strategy for breakfast, the quote from Peter Drucker, because it's true. If something, if a strategy isn't working, they'll innovate. They'll figure it out, and, and, and they're so committed to their vision that there's no stopping them, and that's what truly is worth investing in. I think a lot of people want to invest in something that's tried and true, but really it's the thinking that, that creates that type of innovation and opportunity. That's what we want to invest in. So I, I, I haven't read that blog post yet, but I most certainly will. That's awesome. So th- I think your experience actually goes along with mine, and, and I'm very fortunate in my strategic coach world to run into superb entrepreneurs who are creating small, what we would call bubbling companies. And, and one of the things that we find from kind of a value standpoint is they're, also, they're really about abundance. They're not, you know, there's a, a mindset that there's there's lots of opportunity for everyone. You know, it's not a scarcity mentality, which is kind of stage three to me, which is, I'm great, you're not. And and so they just see the world as being a sort of magical place that they can have a great impact on and then, and then also benefit from. So, you know, and the other thing that came to mind as you were talking is that really, you know, as you move up the different stages, there's an exponential nature to that. You, it gets it gets exponentially better each time, and we've had this great on beginning relationship with Peter Diamandis, who wrote Abundance. And one of the things he talks about all the time is the exponential nature of the world now. But we're not mm-hmm. used to thinking about it that way. We're used to thinking linear, linearly. So ex- thinking exponentially is a bit of a shift. Well, yeah, that's true. But you know, on the point about abundance and scarcity, I have to say everybody's messed up about that point. And so, <laughs> if we could just spend two minutes and clear it up, done. Uh, Okay, for people to say, well, you know, I live in an abundant world or or you live in a scarce world, they're both wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are some things, and I'm familiar with, you know, Peter's book, and I know Peter. So some things are legitimately scarce. Yes. There is only so much air to breathe. And maybe someday we'll have the technology to make it. But for now, there's only so much air. There's only so much coal. There's only so much water. There's only so much gold. There's only so many people in the world. There's only so much, you know, you sort of go down the list. And, and. So some things are legitimately scarce. Money can be legitimately scarce in some companies. Mm-hmm. And then there are other things that are, that are legitimately abundant, meaning if you give it to someone, you're not in any way deprived of it. Ideas are abundant. Technology by its nature is abundant because it builds upon previous versions of itself. Mm-hmm. And the, it, praise is not, is not scarce. It's abundant. If I, if I praise you, Shannon, it doesn't mean that I can't also praise someone else. 
the big mistake that people make is they treat that which is abundant as if it's scarce. Mm-hmm. So they treat praise, morale, culture, you know, self-esteem, uh, innovation, as though it's scarce, and it isn't. But there's another mistake, which is they treat something that is um, scarce as though it's abundant. And I knew a lot of companies. I bump into entrepreneurs all the time that say, we're practicing abundance thinking as a running out of cash. <laughs> no, it's right now. It might be different tomorrow, but for right now, you've got a scarcity of cash. And the reason I say that is the single thing that is most highly correlated to innovation other than culture is scarcity. Mm. People feel like they don't have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. That other company has got all this stuff. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, you're under-resourced. Again, I'm an entrepreneur myself. We don't have as much as the big consulting companies. You know, we don't have staffs of, of or whole departments of people to do graphic design. We do everything ourselves. And that forces us because we, you know, real, we, we grapple with it. We you know, see it for what it is. It makes us really innovative. We find new ways to do things, and people often can't believe that we're able to turn things out with, with a small group. And it's, you know, and here I have kind of a disagreement with, with, with Peter about it. Peter, you've got to treat stuff that's scarce as though it's really scarce and treat things that are abundant as though it's abundant. And, and he's absolutely right. People treat things that are abundant as though they're scarce. He's absolutely right. The nature of technology, it's very liberating. Eventually we'll get more energy out of solar cells than we need for the planet. But that's not the case right now. So if you just kind of remember that as an entrepreneur, treat that which is scarce as though it's scarce. Treat that which is abundant as though it's abundant. It's actually the key to unlocking a whole bunch of stuff and making sure you never run out of cash, which is the first rule of running a business. Don't run out of cash. Never. Cash is king. Well, and, and to your point, you know, the expression necessity is the mother of invention is completely true. Like you, you're, you're stuck. You've got to figure something out, so you do. And I think where Peter would agree with you is particularly when he's creating the, the X prizes, the various ones, he's extremely clear that there have to be some very critical constraints. You know, and he talks about, you know, innovation comes out of a very narrow range of, of criteria that you have to meet. You can't do everything. You can, you can only do this. And he's very specific about it. So it probably would take a little bit more debate between the two of you, uh, which would be entertaining. <laughs> but part of it is, at least in the conversations I've heard him say, that constraints really are critical to that innovation. Otherwise, you won't get it. It's too general kind of like when you were talking about culture and groups at the beginning, it's too general. You can't get a handle on it. You can't actually move anywhere because it's too broad. So once you really narrow down through lack of resources or something else, the constraints, then you can actually innovate and create something new and useful. Yeah, well, and so let me, let me return this discussion you know, back, to, back to culture for, because it, it, this actually does tie, tie together. So, so, so yeah, watch, it, watch how cool this is, okay? Mm-hmm. So the, the mistake that a lot of people at stage three make is they, they treat time as though, or at least it, kind of their, their ability to manage time, as though it's abundant. And it actually isn't, mm-hmm. right? Time, time is truly a scarce resource. Yeah. And so one of the, the big ways that we encourage entrepreneurs to move you know, themselves and others from stage three to four is make yourself scarce. Make yourself a scarce resource. Don't try to fix every problem. Don't try to sit in on every meeting. Don't try to make every decision. Make yourself scarce. And as um, you know, it goes back to the, to the, the book Influence, the, the classic book by, by Cialdini, scarcity is valuable. If something is scarce, people want it. If it's too valuable, they don't want it as much. 
So if you make yourself scarce, it forces other people to innovate. It forces other people to become abundant with their abilities and using innovation and other techniques you know, to make really amazing things happen. So breakthrough that happened in, in our company, um, you know, we try to, again, eat our own dog food and this stuff, is I realized m- my personal, Dave's relationship to time was very stage three. You know, I'm better at time management than anybody I've ever met. And that actually legitimately is true. I'm great at time. But I can't manufacture time. I'm not God. And so my, you know, company basically did an, did an intervention and said, you know, you really stage three about this. You got to stop. And I said, well, what do I, you know, what do I do? I'm, you know, I agree with you. You're right. What, what's the solution? And they said, we need to make you scarce. So suddenly I'm not available for every meeting. I'm not available for, you know, every, to resolve every problem. And it boosted the group up to a, you know, to a completely new level. So it would say to entrepreneurs, make yourself scarce and you are likely to create stage four around you. I love that because that's actually completely is correlate with strategic coach principles, which has a lot to do with do your unique ability. Don't be around for all the stuff you're not great at. Take way more free time out of your year. So don't, don't work 365 days. We make people's years much smaller in terms of their working time. So you put some gigantic constraints and what happens is they get a lot more innovative and, and their team steps up. One of the quotes that Dan says all the time, he says, you never know how good your team is until you leave which I think supports what you're saying in terms of the fact that until you're gone, and sometimes until you create the vacuum, people don't step up. They don't realize that they can make a contribution because you're taking up room. Yeah. So that's a great transformation to talk about. Well, speaking of time, I want to make sure I honor yours and that we wrap up on time. So now for me, obviously, this has been a fabulous discussion of how to move up the levels and that you've been really clear about specifically how the three steps for how to get from, from three to four. Now, the thing that I also want to reinforce is that you talked about at stage three values are very personal and at stage four, they're very much a group. You know, you, you're aligned. I actually just had a conversation before our call about with someone I said, you know, you might want to find people who are already in alignment with you because I think he's trying to convert some people and it may not be working the way that he wanted. <laughs> but, but you have some great exercise. I know there's one I'm thinking of to help people have that conversation about core values. So could you outline that quickly? Yeah, sure. In fact, I'll give you a slice on it that's new. It's, it's oh, from the next book that I'm working on. Yay. The uh, untitled yet. It may it may be called Outrageous Leadership when we're done, but I'm not sure. Uh, if you get people talking about, this is going to sound really counterintuitive, but if you get them talking about what pisses them off, <laughs> okay, what pisses you off? Sorry, and <laughs> my mother, until she passed away a couple years ago, was not proud of the fact that I had introduced the word suck into <laughs> corporations all around the world. So now introducing the word piss. I find it quite refreshing, actually. <laughs> so if you get people together, and, and real, the question is, what makes you really, really, really angry? And you flip around what makes you angry, what you see is a value that you violated or that has been violated. So the civil rights movement in the United States got going because people said, what's going on is violating our values. So if you get people talking about what really irritates them, so a lot of entrepreneurs are irritated that big companies are dumb and stupid and bureaucratic. And why does that piss you off? What, what value, what principle does that violate that you hold so dear? And for many of them, it's, you know, people should maximize their potential. People should make an impact. People should be expressed at work. There shouldn't be all of this, you know, thing where you have to look like everybody else and sound like everybody else. So the value that comes out of that discussion is, 
you know, possibly expression or possibly passion or potential. And those are your core values. And the reason I'm going down that road rather than the aspirational road is that really everybody can engage about the question, what ticks me off, even groups at stage two. And as they then move into the discussion about, well, here's the principle that that violates, the group in, the, in one conversation can move from two to three very quickly and potentially even glimpse stage four in the same discussion. What would happen if we, if we organized ourselves around that principle that we've just identified? So I've been asking people the question more and more, what makes you really, really angry? Not just irritated. You know, bad service at a, at a restaurant is irritating, but it's not outrageous. What outrages you? And look at the other side of that, and you will find your, the core of your core values. I love that, Ben. This actually goes back to a profile where, you know, who you really are is actually, you know, defined by what you don't like. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of optional about the things we do like, but we're very passionate about things we don't like or get make us mad. So I like that because it really is tapping into the core and flipping it puts it into the kind of positive thing, what you do really value. So I'm, I'm going to do that for myself. I think that's going to be a great exercise. So just in our last couple of minutes, how, you know, if people want more of Dave, <laughs> even though he's really busy and very, very valuable. So what are you working on now? If someone wants to get in touch with you or read what you've written or um, perhaps engage culture sync, what, how, how can they get in touch with you? What's, 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 how do you, how do you access Dave? Yeah, well, people are always asking for a website that they can remember. So um, as stage three as it sounds, we created DaveLogan.com, because people can remember it. And I'll tell you what you find if you go on that. We're big believers in free, free stuff. So we have the audio book as a free download. If you're into audio books, you can download it for free. And we have something called the 21-Day Challenge that we're really excited about. It's another free thing. Um, one of the things that irritates me is normally the top-tier leadership stuff is only available to people and companies that can afford it. And I just think that's not okay. Leadership needs to be made much more broadly available than it is. And so what the 21-Day Challenge is is a video that gets emailed to you every day, and it's about a three-minute video. It's very short. It's unfortunately for me. And it asks you to do something, usually that you can do in about 20 minutes, so it's a 23-minute-a-day commitment. And at the end of 21 days, you actually will have gone through most of the big um, core learning uh, pieces and even the personal kind of growth that comes from a really great leadership program. We've had thousands of people go through it. So if you go on DaveLogan.com, you can do the 21-day leadership challenge, free audiobook, and a ton of other stuff. Thank you. I now have something new about you to recommend. <laughs> this will be very fun. Dave, this is an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. And, and I hope you're not tired about talking about tribal leadership because I still find it incredibly valuable and you, you clearly have lots of energy about it. So we can look forward to a new book coming for you. Any idea when it might be available? Probably next year. Great. That's my guess. Okay. I will look forward and make sure I get the first copy. Um, <laughs> anyway, great. It has been a great chance to reconnect with you. It's been a little while since we've talked. Uh, thank you so much. I know that I can. it's really fun for me when I'm doing an interview. I think, oh, I need to share this with this person and that person and this person because what we've talked about is so relevant to the conversations. And so many of the people I work with are developing their leadership team. And I, I just love 
what you and you guys have done to actually shed an enormous amount of light. So first of all, I want to express my gratitude for the work you've done. But second of all, to very, in a very clear, accessible and fun, playful way, kind of lay out exactly what people need to do. This has been lighthearted and serious minded. And that's always the best of both worlds for me. So thank you a million. And I hope I get to talk again sooner rather than later. Well, well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, Shannon. That's awesome.